The Eagle and Child, Episode 18. Mere Christianity, Book 3, Chapter 6. Christian Marriage. Part 1. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer, and we discuss the writings of the author who is known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today we're looking at the chapter of Mere Christianity, which discusses Christian marriage. And I'm joined today by a man who needs only a dowry of modest proportions, Matt. I don't know if I'm supposed to take this as, are you mocking me, or as a compliment? Oh, it's absolutely a compliment. You are a man of great means, and therefore you can marry for love. You have no need of a dowry. Your facial expression right now leads me to think that you're you're (laughs) totally messing with me. I maybe am a little bit, but it is meant as a compliment. Okay, I appreciate that. Matt is always good for a loan. Good for a loan? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, today Lewis is going to discuss what it means when Christ says, two flesh become one. My favorite part about this section is a discussion on love versus being in love. Even though when Lewis wrote this, he was not married, I do believe he has a beautiful view of marriage. What did you think when you first read this, David? Lewis really presents both sides of marriage for me here. He presents it as this beautiful, beautiful union and one that isn't dependent upon my changing moods. But at the same time, he doesn't shy away from the fact that this is a great work, that this is something that is going to require effort and self-sacrifice, putting another before myself. And I think it's that blend of, by showing the beauty plus the work, it makes you want to, I guess, put the effort in to make it work. And speaking of putting others before yourselves, I wanted to tell the listeners about two of our friends, Megan and Rachel. They're both listeners of the show, and they're actually the sponsors of today's episode. And by sponsors, I mean they furnished us with beverages for this episode. I want to say how kind of them. But am I correct that we're getting sloppy seconds here? (laughs) Possibly. But they did did get you a shock top because they know you like that. Which I appreciate because I think they they were drinking shock top and then they didn't like it. So I thought, (laughs) well, we'll just give it to Matt and David. It is a very girly drink. Uh, (laughs) I, on the other hand, have a slightly more refined palate. And so they gave me a Fathom IPA which is an India Pale Ale from Ballast Point. They also sent us a video of them toasting further up, further in. That was great. (laughs) On a Friday night, no less. Thinking of us on their Friday night. Exactly, exactly. I'll put that up on the Instagram account. So if you're going to put the video of them up? Yeah. You don't don't send me videos of yourself doing something (laughs) silly and don't expect me to put it on the internet. (laughs) There's nothing silly about further up and further in series. Quite right, quite right. All right, come on here, David. The quote for this episode comes from The Weight of Glory. Lewis says, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And I thought, as we're going to get into this topic on Christian marriage, which is a beautiful thing, but as we've already mentioned, very tough thing for life. I mean, there's going to be points where you don't feel very in love with your partner, and they're going to do things that you need to forgive, even if it's very hard. But I think this quote is very fitting for the episode. My married friends told me that if you want to prepare for marriage, go to confession a lot. Because you're going to have to get used to saying sorry. <laughs> That's a, a good lot. one. I like that. <laughs> I'm actually pretty prepared for that. 
Don't read too much into that, listeners. <laughs> okay. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, now... Mm. Okay, that that's... Uh, <laughs> now can. I don't feel as bad that she didn't like the shock top, because this is not shock top. It's a... a I didn't know this this at first. It's very subtle, but it's a ruby fresh grapefruit flavored. There's no beer flavor in this. <laughs> Maybe they thought you would like it even more. <laughs> even my palate is more de- developed than this. Oh, well. Well, thank you anyway, ladies. Yeah, thank you anyways. <laughs> I'm glad I brought scotch down. <laughs> well, tell when you've had when you finished your beer, you can have some scotch. Yes, brain. <laughs> so Jack approaches the subject of marriage with some reticence. And he says it's for a couple of reasons. The first is that the Christian doctrines concerning marriage are exceptionally unpopular. We've already spoken about chastity. Well, it's going to get even worse with marriage. And also because at the time of writing, as Matt mentioned earlier, he wasn't actually married. He would later go on to marry Joy Davidman. But at this point, he was still a bachelor. So we're going to be talking about Lewis's writing on marriage, who wasn't married, from the perspective of two unmarried people. So we're all very qualified for this conversation. <laughs> As we say with this podcast, we're not experts, we're just enthusiasts. <laughs> <laughs> never, I never thought that would be used this way, but I like it. So Lewis kicks things off by looking at the fundamental idea behind Christian marriage. Here's what he says. The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. This is where he's referring to one flesh. And he says, he's not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact, just as when one says that a lock and its key are one mechanism, or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. This union, this union between man and woman, between husband and wife, it's because they are one flesh. This is what makes fornication so wrong. Here's what Lewis says. Those who indulge in it, sexual pleasure outside of marriage, are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which are intended to go along with it and make up the total union. By this he means marriage. He says, the Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong with sexual pleasure any more than the pleasure of eating. It means that you mustn't isolate the pleasure and try and get it by itself. And he gives an example of eating. He says, any more than you'd get the pleasure of the taste without swallowing and digestion, but chewing things up and then spitting them out again. Given how many analogies he makes with food, I'm starting (laughs) to wonder if Lewis had an obsession with eating. This has got to be the third or fourth chapter where he's referenced food as some way to explain something else. I think it's because food is a natural instinct that drives us to satisfy it. And I think that's probably the closest analogy to, say, the sexual drive. Yeah, I like to think that he just really liked food. Okay, probably that as well. (laughs) But his central argument here about isolating one kind of union, the sexual, from all of the others, this is central to his understanding of sex, that it's not meant to be like that. And incidentally, that's actually also the argument against contraception, because you're isolating one sort of union from the other, you're separating the procreative and the unitive aspects of the marital embrace, taking one without the other. But contraception isn't the main topic of this chapter, and if you recall in the preface, he said that he wasn't going to touch on it. So let's just move on. Christianity teaches that marriage is for life, 
But unfortunately, this has become a major point of contention between today's society and Christians. And you might be thinking, well, this isn't strictly true. After all, wasn't it the question of divorce which brought about the Henry VIII's break from the Roman Church? Yeah, the Pope wouldn't give him uh, an annulment, so he broke communion. Yeah, so we even have it within the Christian sects. And you'll find different denominations will tackle divorce rather differently. In some denominations, divorce and remarriage isn't even an option, such as in the Catholic Church. In, say, the Orthodox communions, there is some allowance for it. And within Protestantism, you really have quite a range. What I like what Lewis points out, though, is while this is true, what we can agree on is that within Christianity, if you strip away some of these differences, the permanence of marriage is taken much more seriously. Absolutely. It was what he was talking about back in the preface. Yeah. And when we quoted from the Vatican II documents, what binds us together is infinitely greater than what divides us. And while all Christians might not necessarily completely agree about divorce, still, when you compare the general Christian view of marriage and its permanence to that of the world, it's very different. Listen to this. They all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body, as a kind of surgical operation. When I first read that, I thought, wow. I mean, that, that's pretty strong language. But then it made me think back to this retreat I went on with John Eldridge. Uh, he's the Wild at Heart author. You've been on that retreat? I have been. Oh, I'm so jealous. It's, yeah. for in, listeners, in Colorado? Yes, exactly right. It was wonderful. My brother and I went. And for listeners, by the way, John Eldridge wrote a book, Wild at Heart. It's an incredible book for men to read. And on, I've mentioned this before, but on the retreat, he talked about how when two people come together in sex, it's like two pieces of paper being glued together. You try to separate them, they're going to get stuck together. It's going to rip. It's going to be messy. I think that's another way of describing exactly what C.S. Lewis is saying here. You know, Lewis describes from a Christian perspective, it's like a surgical operation, cutting up a living body. Unfortunately, if you ask the society what it's like, they'd say it's a business partnership. And well, it's time to dissolve the partnership. It's so, a contract. People break contracts all the time. Exactly. Now, at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned chastity and how unpopular that is. But Jack doesn't root this teaching, this permanence of marriage, he doesn't actually root it in the virtue of chastity. Instead, he roots it in one of the cardinal virtues, which we covered in a previous episode. He roots it in justice. He says, everyone who's been married in a church has made a public, solemn promise to stick to his or her partner till death. The duty of keeping that promise has no special connection with sexual morality. It is the same position as any other promise. And he goes on to say that, well, if the modern world keeps telling us that the sexual impulse is just like all other impulses, well, then it should be treated in that way and should be controlled by our promises, as other indulgences are. In the previous episode, he put forward the idea that our sexual impulse is wildly out of balance. And if that's the case, we should be especially careful of our promises in this area. In response to this, some people might say that, well, yes, I did get up publicly and promise to love this person in sickness and in health until death do us part. But they didn't really mean it. I think you're right. I think what they meant is, I'm going to do my best. I'll do my best until I can't take any more. Then different rules apply. And Jack has this wonderful section where he asks who it was they were actually trying to deceive. Were they trying to deceive God? Not a good idea. <laughs> it seems pretty silly. Were they trying to deceive their spouse or their spouse's family? None of these options are good. 
And none of those end very well. No. This actually reminds me of the board game that we played last weekend, Avalon. It was all about deception and lying. Best game ever. <laughs> if you haven't played Avalon, give it a go. It's, it's like the game Mafia, but just on steroids. In a lot of the listeners are probably wondering, well, how is David playing this? Because he's an intellectual Brit. The first game, his team won purely because he deceived everyone so incredibly well. We thought he was one character, a good character. He ended up being evil, and he just took the game home. It was, it was actually incredible for a first-time player. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, returning to Lewis, he suggests that actually, more often than not, one or other, or maybe even both members of the couple, are actually just trying to deceive the public, getting the respectability that's attached to marriage, without any serious intention of paying the price that goes along with it. I could see that. And he actually makes a rather surprising suggestion because he says that for people that don't actually really believe in the permanence of marriage, he says, well, perhaps they should just live together unmarried. And that might seem a little shocking, but he says that one fault isn't mended by adding another. You know, unchastity isn't improved by adding perjury. I remember when I first came across this, I thought this was one of Lewis's more, maybe called liberal statements. Bold. 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 Yeah. Bold liberals sometimes seem to go together. No. But uh, he, overall, most of the stuff he says seems quite traditional conservative relative to our views, societal's views on issues. This I came across, I thought, wow, that was, that was pretty bold. But then when I read it, I, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Let's not layer on two sins. Let's just stick with one. It's logical sense. Classic Lewis. Now, if I actually wanted to push back on this a little bit, I would argue, surely coming together in marriage, even without a perfect intent, there's still going to be grace there. Mm -hmm. And particularly from the Catholic conception where marriage isn't just something good, but it's something ordained by God. It's a sacrament. That surely that there is some extra help that comes with that. I'm getting the sense as we're talking about this, we might be a little harsh here as we say people are trying to deceive the public. Oh yeah, and I do want just to clarify, yeah, we're using very striking language here. Mm -hmm. If anybody has been through a divorce, I'm sure you didn't take it glibly. I don't think Lewis would say that he's describing the situation for every divorce. So if you yourself have received a divorce, your situation may be entirely different. In particular, I don't think Lewis is talking about the situation where a divorce is basically necessary for the safety of either one of the spouses or the children. If any reservations are coming up, hold them because as, as this chapter develops, more will unfold of what I or what Lewis believes people really are thinking when they're entering into this. They're not really thinking I'm going to deceive the public and try to live upstanding and then divorce the person later, as maybe it sounds right now. It, it'll get more fleshed out as we go. And if you recall from the psychoanalysis episode two weeks ago, we talked a lot about raw materials. And here, a lot of people go into their marriage with the baggage of their parents and their previous relationships. So there's also a lot of stuff going on here. And I really like that you brought up the psychoanalysis chapter and the raw material from two uh, episodes ago, because I think not only from our, our upbringing, but more importantly from society. I mean, that the books, the novels, Hollywood, that's what shapes most of our views of what marriage is supposed to be like. And, and we're going to get into that in the second half of this episode. Some might respond by saying, it's not that they're going up to deceive. They actually genuinely believe they're in love. And that's the point of marriage. 
Therefore, if you stop being in love, you should end the marriage. But if that's the case, there's no point in making a promise. No, <laughs> because you don't have any control over that. And I, I can't control how I'm feeling. And I love, I, I love that point when I came across that by Lewis. He goes, can you really promise to staying in love for 50 years? And he has a rather amusing section where he just talks about how terrible that would be. If when you're in the first throes of love, if that lasted for years, he said you would get nothing done. <laughs> and I like how he says, this is quoting Lewis now, if love is the whole thing, then the promise can add nothing. And if it adds nothing, then it should not be made. And he actually quotes G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic writer and apologist. And he says, this isn't even something alien to lovers. He says, those who are in love, their natural inclination is to bind themselves by promises. And he points to all of the love songs and poems that are full of vows of eternal constancy and fidelity. And Lewis points out that what we're promising is not about our feelings. It's about our actions. We can't control our feelings. But what can we control? We can control our actions. And so he's expressing a sentiment which has been said many different ways, but which I think could be summed up as love is a choice, an act of will, not simply a feeling. Yeah, he says that you can't promise never to have a headache or to always feel hungry, but you can promise about what you're going to do, what you're going to choose. What I love about this is it can be applied to our relationship with God. Think about that moment when you gave your life to Christ, when you felt that encounter and that love of him, that you knew he existed and you gave your life, you surrendered to his will. Mm -hmm. And prayer was easy. Church was the best part of your week. The Bible just came alive to you as you were reading. Then, remember, after that moment when <laughs> prayer became dull, you wondered if God existed or not, you felt nothing. The people in the pews next to you started coughing loudly and irritatingly. And the person said scooch over when they wanted to get into the pew. <laughs> yeah, I've heard it said that uh, Christians can be kind and considerate and loving, except if you sit in their seat at church. <laughs> it's so true. But that's what... The promise of faith is when you say to God that I surrender to you, you're committing to act a certain way in obedience and prayer, even when you don't feel like it. Whatever your emotions are doing, you're going to follow through on that choice, on that decision. Let's think of Mother Teresa's letters, which she wrote that she was having a hard time feeling God's presence in her life. And yet she stayed committed to what she knew to be true. She held on in the darkness what she had seen in the light. Exactly. And that's what we're describing here with marriage. You, you did feel that at one point, probably. There was a feeling here. And hopefully throughout your marriage, it comes back from time to time. Sure. But there'll be periods when it's not there. Mm -hmm. And you're committed to the action. That's your promise. And the romantic might say, well, why would you want to keep a couple together that didn't love each other anymore? And Lewis actually gives some very practical reasons. Firstly, by providing a home for their children because children deserve to have both of their parents. Secondly, to protect the woman, who has no doubt sacrificed much, including her career and her body, in getting married and bearing children. And lastly, to protect her from just being dropped by the man when he's tired of her. Next, Luke explains that this isn't about good or bad. So it's not that being in love is a bad thing in this act of willing yourself to love a person is a good thing. Being in love is a good thing, but it's not the best thing. I like what he says here. 
People like thinking in terms of good and bad, not good, better, and best, or bad, worse, and worse. What we call being in love, it's a glorious state. It helps to make us generous and courageous. It's very true for men. If you're in love, you'll do a lot of things. A lot of stupid things. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It opens our eyes not only to the beauty of the beloved, but to all beauty. And it subordinates, especially at first, our merely animal sexuality. In that sense, love is the great conqueror of lust. No one in his senses would deny that being in love is far better than either common sensuality or cold self-centeredness. Being in love is a good thing, but is not the best thing. And it's not the best thing because feelings fade. He says that no feeling can be relied to last in its full intensity or last at all. He says that knowledge lasts, principles last, and habits last. But feelings come and go. This makes me think of our current generation. I hate to bash on the millennials because there's so many... I'm not a millennial. You can bash on them all you like. (laughs) I didn't realize that. I am just in Generation X. Oh, you're lucky. But I, I do hate to bash on this most recent generation because isn't it amazing how our... So much of what we do is about keeping this high. The, the dopamine hit, essentially, that feeling is, is in, in as we know from life, when everything we do, you drink a bunch of coffee, the effect diminishes. You, you get a lot of dopamine, it diminishes. It's the exact same concept here. So if you're going for that in marriage, that feeling is going to go away. He's realistic about what is the beauty of marriage. It's not just being in love. It's the joy of committing yourself willing yourself to love a person every single day and having that in return. And love here is willing the good of the other. That's how it's often expressed in theology. This is what love is. Seeking someone else's good, even if it's costing you something. That could be the quote of the day. I mean, that's a good one. (laughs) So while the feelings of being in love can either cease or just diminish, it can be replaced by something else, a deep unity, he calls it. It's maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by, in Christian marriages, the grace which both parents ask and receive from God. And he goes on and says, they can have love for each other even at moments when they do not like each other. I heard a quotation from Jackie Francois recently when she said, sometimes my husband, I love him, but I want to punch him in the face. And we do this for ourselves all the time. We love ourselves even when we don't actually like ourselves. When we don't like our choices, we still will the good for ourselves. That needs to, we, we got to pause there for a second. Friends, please take a step back and let that sink in here. We love ourselves even when we don't like ourselves. There's so many times in my life where I don't like things I'm doing. I don't like the way I'm behaving. I don't like the choices I'm making, the habits I've formed. And yet I always love myself. And that's what we're called to do for other people, especially our significant other. Sorry, you can go back to the quote now. (laughs) Lewis says they can retain this love for each other when they would easily, if they allowed themselves to be in love with someone else. He's going to come back to this idea of this is actually still a choice. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. His choice of words, explosion that started it. Well, it's, it's a beautiful image. When it you start is. a car, there's a spark. There's a, there's a sudden rush of power to get the thing going. But you want something else to take over when you're cruising along at 65 miles an hour or however fast you drive on the motorway. <laughs> uh, something else to take over when you're actually then on that journey. Is this? Did you come up with this analogy on your own? 
Yeah. You're a young well, budding C.S. Lewis over here. Nah, to, to be fair, I basically I just followed through from what he was saying. I, I thought it was pretty good. Oh, I'd take credit for that. <laughs> and since we're transitioning into the next part of the episode, uh, my beer's gone. So let's pour some of that scotch. What What are we drinking? Ah, it's about time, Brain. I mean, <laughs> I, I've been waiting for this, actually. This is when the episode gets real fun. All right, so I brought, last time David shared with us, shared with me, and yeah, all of just, you guys. Just you. No, all of us. <laughs> we all got to experience it. Uh, shared with us a more peaty scotch, smoky mm-hmm. scotch. We had a Laphroaig, and then the following week we had uh, Johnny Walker Green Label. Yeah, and, and I'm not very familiar with that. So I thought, you know what, let's, let's go with a single malt. Let's get away from that smokiness, that peatiness. And I usually like Macallan 12, but this is actually a new one for me. I've never had this. It's a Glenfiddich, single malt, aged 12 years, and I'm hoping it's good. We're about to find out together. Okay. Let's uh, cheers again. All right, cheers. Cheers. Ooh, that's angry. <laughs> it, it is harsh in the back of your throat. <laughs> yeah, it's quite harsh up front as well. Maybe I'm just useless. I'm not getting the up front. I'm getting the throat, though. It, it, that burns. Let's pretend that's because it's good. <laughs> what we've said thus far is kind of hard to swallow. And I'm sure lots of people will be rushing to say, no, this is wrong. This isn't what love is like. This isn't what marriage is like. You're either viewing it too negatively or in some kind of oppressive fashion. Or you might just say, Lewis isn't married. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And neither do we. (laughs) Neither do we. And to quote Lewis, you might well be right. (laughs) It never stopped us from talking about something. No, no. (laughs) I remember the first time I went to the pub with my dad, it was a bar at a hotel not too far away from my house. He would go there usually about once a week. And the first time I went with him there as like a rite of passage, I heard my father discussing the latest football game with the other guys at the bar. I knew for a fact he hadn't seen it. I knew for a fact he didn't really care about football. But the way he spoke about it, you you would have no idea. Is that your way of saying that Lewis is completely full of malarkey here and just messing with us? No, I'm just saying it's true for myself. I saw my father display the skill of talking about something he knew nothing about. And I'm apparently blessed with the same, same gift. That explains so much with the Avalon Knight. Yeah. Now we know where it came from. <laughs> Genetic inheritance. My dad was a salesman. <laughs> that, that really does actually explain a lot. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Lewis says that before you rush to disagree with this assessment of love, falling in love, and marriage, he says make absolutely certain that your thoughts on this subject come from looking at the world around you, from seeing the interaction of married couples, and not instead getting all of these ideas from novels and poems and movies you watch those and they'll make you think you can stay in love forever well every love story in a movie usually ends with them riding off into the sunset and you hope it's happily ever after that is interesting it always does end right after the explosion that starts the engine never the rest of it you do get a nice little fluffy song at the end that makes you feel good too sure although having said that we've both seen the recent star wars movies Mm mm-hmm with Han and Leia, their happily ever after was not happy or ever after. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to bring in a different movie here. Okay. You're going to hate me for this. Probably. The, <laughs> the notebook's actually pretty accurate. That, <laughs> there was nothing happy ever after about that 
that is a good story of willing the act of love. Think about that. I mean, he has to deal with so much suffering. I am judging you so much for citing the notebook. Uh, is that is an, it's an awful movie and an awful book. It's highly entertaining. I agree. But it's, set aside your emotional response on this. But is not the ending a, a beautiful story of someone that talk about hardship? Yes, in the movie, they make it seem like it's three minutes. But every single day in and day out, your wife doesn't remember who you are. And you go and you read to her. Okay. That's adorable. I'm, so it's trying to I'm thinking more about the fact that she ditched the other guy who was wonderful. Was it Lyle or something like that? There was the, there was the other Air Force guy that she... In truth, I've never actually seen it, but I've read it. I read it in eighth grade. Wow. Yeah. Okay. We're... And I actually really enjoyed it. Okay, we've established your terrible taste in movies and it's just being even more confirmed. This was a book. So you can't, and you, I we am both totally, know you cannot diss my taste of I, books. I, that, that's what brought let, us let's, together let's, here. Let's, let's just move on. I'm having, <laughs> I'm having changing emotions about you, but I'm going to seek your good over and above that. You're going to will my good. I'm going to will your good because I don't really like you at the moment. You're going to forgive me for an inexcusable comment because, because of how much God forgives your inexcusable behavior. Exactly. I'm glad we brought that full circle. Yeah, so am I. So bringing this back to Lewis, the movies, the novels, the poems, they make you think this being in love will last forever. We all know from our own personal experience, I've already listed some different examples from caffeine to dopamine hits. Nothing, no thrill really lasts forever. But it can transition into something else. In the same way that the, the giddy nature of falling in love can be transformed into this deep, profound love for another person. Yeah, like reading to them every oh. single day. <laughs> <laughs> when they don't remember who you are. I'm Matt, sorry. Matt, how many times are you going to quote the notebook today? <laughs> I bet you did not expect that. That's the scotch talking right now. I'm blaming the girls for this. Beer and scotch. <laughs> you mix the two together, you get a different me. Here's how Lewis describes it. He says, if we go through with it, if we don't try and hang on to the, the original thrill, he said the dying away of the first thrill will be compensated by a quieter and more lasting kind of interest. And he actually goes so far as to say that when people are willing to let go of the thrill, to allow it to run its natural course, he says it's then that people are more likely to encounter new thrills in new directions. One of the other lessons we learn from these movies, these novels, poems, is that falling in love is irresistible. And maybe this is the negative side of the notebook. That first <laughs> part you don't like. But Lewis doesn't think this is the case. He's inclined to think that these, these irresistible passions, they're much rarer than we see in books or movies. Obviously, when we come across someone beautiful, someone clever or sympathetic, of course, we're going to admire them. And we're going to love these good qualities. But he still thinks this is very largely our own choosing. Yeah, you can meet the most beautiful, intelligent person, but it is still within the scope of your will to choose whether or not to allow yourself to indulge these feelings or not. And Lewis says that you'd actually be more likely to indulge these feelings if you've been consuming all of these movies and novels with these strange romantic ideas and you then pour a little bit of alcohol on top of that. <laughs> and yeah, then, then you're going to be fanning the flames to an illicit fire. 
This is why I'm fawning over the notebook right now. We pour a little alcohol into me. More seriously, all of this is making me think of the teaching of St. Paul, death and rebirth. That is a huge theme throughout the New Testament, along with dying to your flesh and being reborn in your spirit. I think what we're, a message that's coming across here is if you're a person who hasn't disciplined your flesh, which by that I mean you constantly let your emotions dictate the way that you live your life, your decisions that you make, this is going to be a very hard thing to prevent from happening. But if you're someone who's got a lot of emotional control, who in the little actions of life where you do things that you don't feel like doing, but you know you're supposed to do, that builds up. It's like weightlifting. The more you do that, the better you'll become at it. And we're actually nearing the time of Lent. And this is traditionally a time of fasting. And this is one of the reasons we fast. We fast so that we are in charge of our body and not the other way around. The body doesn't make demands of me and tell me what to do. I'm in charge of it. I'm glad you brought that up. I remember a work colleague asked me, God loves me even though I don't fast. Which missed the point of fasting. Mm -hmm. We're not doing it because we're earning God's love. We're doing it because we're disciplining ourselves to experience God's love more. It's all about self-mastery. We master ourselves so that we can give ourselves away. So I can bring all of myself under my control so I can give it all to God. And I'm afraid that's where we're going to stop today. Matt and I clearly got carried away on this subject. So rather than just producing one episode of the normal length, I decided to leave most of the material in and split it into two. So I'll see you in the next episode where Matt and I will be going further up and further in to Christian marriage.